Hi everybody and welcome to What Now? I'm your host Jarrell and you have got to season your chicken. And this is my co-host TJ and I have no clever riposte for that I'm afraid. And this is the show where we take the week's hot topics and talk some shit about them and this week is no different. What do we have to talk about today? Well, we'll start out with some positive, which is, of course, the confirmation of Katanji Brown-Jackson, uh, which passed the Senate with three Republican votes, I believe. But then we'll talk about some more somber stuff, which includes an abortion law taking effect in Oklahoma, as well as a woman being arrested in Texas for having an abortion, as well as more anti-trans and anti-queer legislation making its way through various state legislatures. Um, Alabama being the most recent one to join in the chorus. So that's what will make for rather heavy listening, but it is important and we must continue to talk about it because otherwise the right will continue its march against gay rights. But on the pop culture side of things, we'll be talking about Bridgerton, um, which we have now both finished, and which I, a good queer, enjoyed. But Jarrell, I think, enjoyed it, but not nearly as much as me. <laughs> so, why don't we start with Kentaji Brown-Jackson, who we've talked about on here before, but is now officially confirmed, which is definitely a good thing, and puts the lie to the, why don't Democrats ever do anything mantra that we hear so frequently. I believe it's Justice Jackson if you're nasty. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. I mean, does it change our court? Um, it does in its, you know, in its makeup, but in its legislation, not so much because it's still a 6-3 conservative court. Super and conservative court. Super conservative court. So it doesn't really change that much of where we are. And of course, out of the woodworks, you tend to have people that are like, well, we could have had this much sooner if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had retired in 2013. Ugh. Yes, but we don't, like, yeah, no, we don't need to go on that on that route, because I think that's a highly disingenuous frame of argument. Yeah, very much. And I have found it very deeply ageist from the beginning, and it's like, no, if Democrats, both voters and politicians, were much more, actually, I take that back, if Democratic voters were much more mobilized by the Supreme Court, this wouldn't have happened. But they refuse to acknowledge that that is the Trump card, that Republicans have held in their hand for quite some time, and it's Democratic voters' inability or unwillingness to turn up in midterms and to get, you know, obviously in 2020, or sorry, 2016, that led us here. So I don't know what else to tell you. Like, that's just the way it is. And I feel like we're going to be in the same damn boat very soon because you keep seeing these polls, and you've got, like, Herschel Walker leading Raphael Warnock in the polls right now. It's just like, well, goddamn... What was all that work for? But the I think the problem comes with the fact that Republicans are, are like, if you're a Republican, a Republican's going to vote, vote for them. It doesn't right. matter. The problem that Democrats have is that they're always having to appease mm-hmm. a sect of people, whether it be ultra-liberal, ultra-progressives, conservative Democrats, you always have to square that circle. So the work is much, much harder. Mm-hmm. All you have to do as a Republican is basically say, I hate gays, I hate trans, can't stand POCs, it's woke culture that's coming after everybody. Don't take our guns. Mexicans are taking our gerbs. And, and abortion. Don't forget abortion. And abortion. And someone will vote for you. That's true. And I was, you know, I'm actually glad you brought that up because that was one of the things that I was thinking about um, when I was perusing Twitter, which is always a mistake. But there's a a particular, like, strand of the discourse, trademark, um, that's always like, well, Democrats aren't accomplishing anything while they're in office, but if they were Republicans, they would be, you know, doing whatever they want, which is true. But the difference being is that people are far more willing to give Republicans a pass than they are Democrats. If Democrats tried the kind of, uh, um, what am I looking for? Authoritarian measures that, and very highly unpopular measures that Republicans try to push through, they would be punished and bashed relentlessly by the commentariat and by the voters. That's just the the fact of it. And we've seen that before. And that's why when people make mention of things like Joe Biden, they feel like he has to do these executive orders for, like, he can cancel student debt with the flick of a pen. But the truth of the matter is, if he were to do that, then people would be upset with the mm-hmm. fact that he decided to do something so drastic 
by executive order as opposed to through Congress. And also, executive orders get rescinded by the next president if they so choose. Right. So what that means is you can cancel student debt and then for like, I guess, the next two years. And then after that, it's back on. Like, how the fuck does that work? Right. I mean, I would say, I mean, I've come around on this canceling student debt, but only because it's a matter of pragmatism that we need something to help us win the midterms. Right. And that would be a surefire way to do it. I'm not sure it's, well, I shouldn't say surefire, but it would help to mobilize the base that is especially young people. See, I'm not sure if young people are the base, though. Well, they would they be more likely... to vote. Yes, that they would be more likely to reward the party that gives them student debt cancellation. But I feel like even if they got their debt canceled, I don't think they would actually get out there and vote. They would make other excuses as to why they didn't. I mean, possibly. I'm just I mean, saying, that's what it feels like. Well, I, sure, but I'm just saying as far as, like, we're getting down to the wire and, like, we have to do something... And I think that, you know, that's a, a thing that would be of benefit to both the Democratic Party, but also... I mean, people. so would legalizing marijuana if they wanted to, or decriminalizing marijuana. Yeah, or but it's an easier sell to moderates canceling student debt than legalizing marijuana. I mean, I, I suppose. And listen, I got student debt too, so if I could get all that shit wiped out, absolutely, I would be grateful. But I, I just, I don't know if... That's it, Chief. Mm. I'm not saying it is the silver bullet. Right. I'm just saying it is a thing that should be done at this point, just because we're at the, like, break glass in case of emergency scenario. Right. Given that we are almost certainly going to lose control of the House and could very well lose control of the Senate, too, which would mean that Biden will get nothing done the second half of his presidency, which means we could Unless lose... Unless he just the... works with a veto pen the rest of his time. Right. And that's it. Right. Or to go, goes ahead and uses the executive orders in the second half of his administration, which is not ideal, as we already discovered with President Obama. Mm-hmm. And we don't want a repeat of that. We need the stability and the long-lastingness of actual legislation. Yes, and I think that was the point when that was the point he was making when he said, I need a bill, I need it on my desk, it needs to be signed, and there was no bill, it was not put on his desk, and therefore was not signed. Right, and we need to talk about this rhetoric of, like, Democrats haven't done anything that is an absolute bald-faced lie. Mm-hmm. It's like, they have done the best with an absolutely abysmal situation that they inherited from the last truly dysfunctional presidency and the last ridiculously dysfunctional Congress. Plus, it's... a once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-century pandemic. Yeah, like, it's, the same, it's the same rhetoric that we heard in 2010. Yes, and it's very, very frustrating, and I find that, I have said on this pod in in real life that Twitter is not real life, but it does have an influence, and it is a somewhat useful barometer for what people are thinking, but it's also stupid because everybody on there doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about, and so they decontextualize everything and turn it into, you know, they act as if they know or are the absolute authority on things, but they're actually really not. It's it's as if they're the final arbiter for whatever whatever's going on in politics and there could never be uh other sides to what is going on there's there's no room for nuance on social media and i think that's the main point but the people who kind of um feed into that are people who should know better right that's true. Now, speaking of which, that actually is a nice segue into the two anti-trans bills that were just signed into law in Alabama, <clears throat> one of which it dictates that students in schools use the bathroom that is the one for the their birth certificate, and the other that criminalizes any kind of gender confirmation surgeries and procedures for teenagers. Now, of course, we talked about this a little bit, I think it was last week. You know, when this kind of legislation was making its way through the Don't Say Gay Bill. And I said that it was going to move to other states. And it has, which we knew at the time. And, I mean, Kay Ivey is a very, very conservative Republican, and it's a very, very conservative state. But we would be delusional to think that it's not, as you said last week, going to continue making its way to other state legislatures who have been, like, basically champing at the bit to do this. So it's quite frightening, and I... I don't even know what to think or what to do at this point just because it's so deeply dangerous to young trans people. And I really feel sorry for young people who already 
struggle with their identities anyway in a deeply homophobic and transphobic world and this just makes it that much more difficult for them when it's institutionalized and given the force of law and the thing that makes it so bad is that this country is its most inclusive like it's the most inclusive it's ever been right maybe since the gay 90s i don't know but we have laws and protections that are in place for in some queer spaces and such. We have more queer spaces, more things in our media for queer people, and yet conservatives want to take us, I guess, back in the closet. It just doesn't make any sense. It feels so regressive, and it's like, are we really doing this right now? Right, and I mean, this is the thing, and I've been seeing, again, I, I don't want to put too much stock into Twitter, but we can also sort of branch off and talk about the no kink at pride discourse that's also going on right now. So it's not, because all of this is of a piece, by which I mean, we live in a culture that is still deeply homophobic and transphobic in practice, or sorry, in philosophy, if not in practice. Let me explain. Very often, I think that even straight allies who say they love their gay friends may very well do that. And they may very well be okay with people being gay and getting married. What they are not okay with is gay sex or anything about gay bodies or trans bodies because those things to them are still deeply abhorrent. And so it doesn't take very much for them to be okay with or to partake in homophobia and transphobia which of course is then internalized which i think the no kink rhetoric is obviously part of that too it's like it's it's almost like i want i want what's best for you but keep it to yourself right it's it's the when black people bring their uh when black queer people bring their significant other to the cookout you can bring it to the cookout but that's your friend Right. That's your friend. That's all that is. There's nothing else. Or that's 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 the other auntie. Or uh, he's just a bachelor. Like that kind of shit. When they know exactly what the fuck's going on, but they don't want to discuss it. It's keep it to yourself. And it 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 gets old. And it. The only thing I can say is that like, we have come so far, and yet not really. <laughs> I know, and that's what depresses me. And that's what makes me very angry when I see the the no kink at Pride, which is, first of all, nebulous. Second of all, I'm not actually sure it's a thing. I'm 90% sure that 95% of the people who talk about it on Twitter don't actually mean it. I think they're just trolling. Or they don't even go to Pride. Right. And so, you know, I see this rhetoric of like, well... I'm ace or I'm whatever and therefore I don't feel represented if there's kink and I don't feel like having sexuality thrust in my face. Bitch, blah, don't blah. take yourself to the Folsom Street Fair then. Like, no. Right, and it's like, well, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, not every single event has to represent every, like, permutation of identity. If someone wants to get fisted during, uh, right. in front of Wetzel's Pretzels during Pride at Folsom Street, um... At this point, when you're an adult, you know what the Folsom Street Fair is. Stay your ass at home and don't bring your kids. I mean, come on now. I have been to many Prides. I have been to New York City Pride. I have been to D.C. Pride. I have been to Syracuse, New York Pride. I've been to many. I've been to Reykjavik Pride, like in, in, in Iceland. And I can assure you, there's nothing especially kinky at a mainstream Pride party. So no one's getting fisted in front of a Wetzel's pretzel. Right. It's like, I, th- I also think it's just a made-up thing that social media influencers talk about as if it's a real thing, but it's really not. I honestly think that the major kinks are like at something like the Folsom Street Fest. Right, which of course no one's going to because none of us can afford to live in San Francisco. Right. But I don't think Pride as a whole, you've got drag queens, you might have some dick stickers or something like that. You might have puppy play or whatever. Right, but it's not like people are like all fucking on the street. But it's like, that's the thing, is that gay pride is about sexuality. It is, queerness is itself organized around sexuality. I'm going to get canceled for this one, but I mean, that's just, it seems strange to me to say that a movement that has always about, been sexu- has always well, in its, its origins been about sexual freedom right, should it, now be policed by people who don't want that. Like, it it's, goes it's, hand in hand with sexual liberation. It's not, it's not that gay pride is about 
sex. It's right. more so that they go hand in hand. Right. Sexual liberation and sexuality plus pride. Right. But the thing is, is like, yes, in some ways it is about sex. It can't help but be about sex. The entire identity of the gay rights movement is about sex, regardless of whether we might dress it up in respectability politics. But the fact is, the only reason it's an issue is because we sleep with other men. Or other or women. Other women. Or, or, the, or as we've expanded to sort of gender presentation, because we don't obey the rules of gender. <laughs> so, like, all of which, I'm, all of which, to bring us back to what I started this conversation, when I see the anti-trans stuff, this is, again, all of a piece that these phenomena are related to each other and that we are seeing this retrenchment of conservative ideology, which is infecting even members of our own community who are buying into, it's not just respectability closet, it's politics, it's almost going back in the closet. Like, just do whatever you need to do to survive this toxic environment. Caitlyn Jenner's terrible. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to point that out, given the fact that she decided that she's going to work for Fox News. And, and I'm not a trans do, activist, she says. And Yeah, and do their bidding. And she's never been a trans activist. I don't want to go on this diatribe, but I'm going on it. When she became she and identified as she, after everybody had called at the time who identified as Bruce, they called her gay and made fun of her as a gay man and everything. And as soon as she said, I'm trans, everybody was like, she's an activist. She's not an activist. She's a terrible human being. Right. She has been a terrible human being. Did y'all forget she killed somebody? Like, I don't understand why y'all are forgetting this shit. She is awful. And the fact that y'all decided that, and I'm just saying, it's a nebulous, y'all. It's a nebulous, y'all. But y'all wanted to make her woman of the year for fucking what? Y'all wanted to put her on the cover of Vanity Fair for fucking what? She didn't earn it. Right. And is she doing anything to help the trans kids who are going to be victimized? Because that's the thing we have to remember with these bills that are passing in Florida and Alabama is it's going to impact the youth. Like, you know, for all the Republicans that are screeching about how what about the children, they don't give a fuck about the most vulnerable children, who yeah. of course the queer and trans kids who are going to be feeling this, who even if they aren't themselves like at that point in their life are going to never feel comfortable because these laws send a very clear message that they are not acceptable. Yeah, something something grooming. Right. I mean, I don't know. Yes, that is the new rhetoric, is that these are actually anti-grooming bills. And if you are opposed to them, then clearly you are just a pedophile, which is disgusting. I don't even understand what the fuck that means. I don't think they know what grooming is, especially given the fact a lot of them have participated in grooming. And yet they want to make it seem like um, Adventure Time or um, the new version of She-Ra is grooming. It's not. Right. I mean, grooming serves the same rhetorical emotional function as CRT. It's a catch-all that means nothing. It is an empty piece of emotionally laden language that just means to evoke all of the deep-seated fears that people already have, that gay people are really just pedophiles in waiting. They're just waiting to prey upon your children. That's all it is. And it's disgusting. And I hope that we move beyond it, but clearly... We have not. Yes, because at one point you couldn't have, you know, you couldn't have gay teachers. You couldn't have um, same-sex parents. You couldn't have any of those things. And now we're just going right back to it. So we're like, we're moving back to the 70s and 80s again. And it's it's crazy to me. And I, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Right, which brings us to then the last piece, which of course is the anti-abortion legislation being passed in Oklahoma, which dovetails with the woman being arrested for an abortion in Texas, which the charges were dropped because it turns out it wasn't even an abortion. But that is a harbinger and an indicator of where things are going as we are going, as we're moving forward with these kinds of legislative efforts on the parts of conservatives. Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen again and again and again. And basically what's going to happen is People are going to have heavy menstruations or they're going to have really... A miscarriage. They're going to have a, a really bloody miscarriage and people are going to assume, oh, she had an abortion. She had an abortion in the bathroom 
and therefore she can get arrested. It just doesn't make any sense. It's it's very it's very Handmaid's Tale, and I hate even bringing it up, but it is. And I'm like, Bryce Delter, where are you? Chris Hayes, where y'all at? Right. I mean, because we warned everyone about this. Because the writing was right there for everyone who has any, even the most passing awareness of what conservative activists have been doing for the last 20 years. Like, this isn't just, this didn't come out just out of the blue. This has been in the making for decades. As soon, almost as soon as Roe v. Wade passed the Supreme Court, conservatives have been working overtime to re-implement it in one way or another. Yeah. And, you know, again, this always will disproportionately impact the poor and people of color. And poor people of color, obviously. Right. And what was really most... Uh, what's interesting is, like, maybe... It's been a while ago, but I had an episode that was called Funerals for Fetuses. And yes, Tact that's is not Jarrell's strong suit. And, and yes, that is very tactless and, and gross and everything. I didn't make up the name. My previous co-host did, but that's beside the point. My point is that while it sounded hyperbolic then, we're going to be in a situation where those laws are going to pass. I mean, they already passed. That was the where thing. Where in if someone has a heavy flow, a heavy flow mis- um a menstruation or a miscarriage, they're going to have to have funerals for it and pay for it. It's like, what are you doing? And why are you so worried about what's happening with women's bodies but can't even show uh, menstruation blood when you're advertising fucking maxi pads? Right. It makes no sense. Yeah. And so the unfortunate thing that's going to happen, and I was reading a piece by E.J. Dion in the New York, I'm sorry, in the Washington Post about what's happening as we speak like what's happening is that there are fault lines opening up between basically red states and blue states around culture war issues and it's going to become increasingly difficult to get an abortion in a red state it's going to be penalized and criminalized in those states who are which again is going to disproportionately disadvantage already vulnerable communities and it's going to get more and more difficult for them to find access to the kinds of health care that they need even in the states that surround them as a good example texas at one point if you couldn't get what you needed in Texas, you could go to neighboring Oklahoma, but this new law in Oklahoma, of course, forecloses on that possibility. So it makes it that much more difficult if you're already a woman in need of an abortion for whatever reason, which quite frankly is none of my business as a man. So whether or not I was would personally prove it, which I am a fully pro-choice person, therefore, I, because I recognize that as a man, I literally have nothing to contribute to this conversation because I will never, I'm a cisgender man, I will never, carry a baby therefore right. i have no i have no intellectual ethical standing to make any commentary about this other than to say it is between a woman herself and her doctor right end of discussion and like if you were in texas like if you're in corpus christi texas there's no and you were poor there's really no way you're going to get from corpus christi all the way up to somewhere like oklahoma because it's miles and miles and miles away it just doesn't it's it's just, it's mind-boggling how people just decide, okay, we're just going to decide what a woman can do with her body, and that woman has nothing, they have no, no say in it. Right. But, I mean, that, like I said, that's what's been happening now for quite some time, and, you know, some of us tried to warn y'all what was going to happen in 2016, and no one listened to us, and I fear that if if voters fall asleep at the wheel or spend too much time lambasting Democrats and not enough time actually, like, motivate, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, mobilizing. That's the word. Mobilizing. We're going to end up right back where we started. And, you know, given what this Supreme Court's makeup is like, I'm not very confident that Roe isn't going to be gutted by the end of this year anyway. Right. And so if that were to be the case, we would see even more laws like what we've already seen in the red states. We would see, you know, all it would take would be you know, a, a committed state legislature and a committed governor to bring this to pass. Okay, so for our last thing, let's talk just a little bit about acquittals, which I didn't mention at the top, but we'll talk about anyway. So it turns out that some of the men responsible for trying to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer were acquitted, as were the policemen who knocked over the older guy, I think it was in Buffalo, correct? Mm-hmm. Several years ago, which, you know, is not exactly encouraging when it comes to people being held accountable for truly disgusting, terrible behavior. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, 
75-year-old guy standing in the way of police officer. Let's just bowl him over so he can hit his head on the pavement. Mmm, someone could have died. Why didn't they take that police officer's Oscar? <laughs> right. So, yeah, it was just distressing that, you know, we see these naked attempts to seize power and to, you know, literally kidnap a sitting governor and nothing happens. Yeah. I mean, there's there's all of this paper trail of all these people wanting to kidnap, rape, murder a governor, a sitting governor, and mm, nothing. You can go on about your business if you'd like. Right. I mean, you have a birthday party to go to? Okay. Um, golfing trip? Okay. Bring me back a t-shirt. Yeah, so that's not great. Um, so I think that sends a message to these kinds of violent extremists that that behavior will be condoned, or at least they'll be able to get away with it. And I think that sets a very dangerous precedent. And it's also forward. why I don't think there's anything that's going to come of the January 6th commission. We've heard so much coming out of it that just makes the entire Trump administration look mm-hmm. more and more corrupt and damning. What was it? The seven hours of missing tape, the documents that was taken, the gifts, the phone calls, the text messages to Mark Meadows. All of this stuff makes... Trump look bad. But do I think anything's going to come of it? Absolutely not. Well, maybe that's a good segue. We have two things to talk about in this pop culture segment. One, which I didn't reference, but we'll, this seems like a natural thing to talk about. Of course, the slap, which still continues to dominate the news waves. I, know I don't want to. Well, I will. But we can only just briefly mention that Will Smith has now been banned from any Academy events for 10 years. And there was a guest column, I think it was in Variety, that was insisting that he had to give back his Oscar to preserve the Academy's honor, which is ridiculous on so many levels. Yeah. Because, frankly, the Academy has no honor for that needs to be salvaged. So Harry I don't know. Lennox, I am a fan, but shut the fuck up. The truth of the matter is, the article was written, but it wasn't written well. He's not a journalist. But, so I, I didn't expect him to go into depth, but... Basically, he was saying that to restore the honor of the Academy, one must return their Oscar that they earned. Um, no. Absolutely not. There have been moments and times in the Oscars in the past 10 years that have been much more, let's just say, not great. And a slap is probably number five within the past 30 years. So it just doesn't it, it it doesn't make any sense. And what makes it even worse is when you're saying, well, he must restore the honor of the academy, he should also bring up that there are other people, other offenders who have received Oscars. Right, and including Roman Polanski. Who received Oscars after admitting to having sex with a 13-year-old girl or after everything that went down with Harvey Weinstein, the 80 Oscars that he has, why doesn't he have to give them back? Like, one must explain those things, too. If Will Smith has to give back his Oscar, why does none of the other people who have done far more heinous things have to do the same? I'm not convinced, sir. I'm not yeah. convinced. Neither am I. But we don't need to, we don't need to go on at length about the slap just because I know I'm sure that our listeners are tired of hearing about it I'm certainly tired of talking about it so let's talk about something a little brighter and more joyful and you hear my little clap there um let's talk about Bridgerton obviously the pop culture phenomenon of the last couple of weeks I would argue you know aside from obviously the slap so if you haven't watched Bridgerton it's essentially a series adapted from the novels by Julia Quinn about a family the Bridgertons, and each novel and each season of the show focuses on a romance between one of the characters and someone else. The first season, of course, was between Daphne Bridgerton and the Duke Simon. And this second season is between Antony, the eldest Bridgerton sibling, and Kate Sharma, who is his his beloved, but comes to England with her sister Edwina to find a suitor. And of course, you know, they're a match of likes because they're both very indomitable in terms of their personalities. And Sparks fly and eventually he proposes to Edwina, but 
everything falls apart when it's revealed that he's in fact in love with Kate. Difficulties ensue. She falls off a horse, of course, and but they end up together and everyone ends up happily. Um, I loved it. I loved everything about the second season. In fact, if you've been following my newsletter on Omniverse, you know I've written about each episode. I'm still almost finished with these write-ups. And I think Bridgerton is fantastic escapist costume drama that I love. A friend of mine called it schmaltzy, which is probably true, but I don't care. I love it anyway. So what were some of your thoughts? Because I know you weren't a huge fan of the first season, but in the pregame you did say you enjoyed the second season more. I did enjoy the second season more. Did I think it was good? Mm, meh. Um, misogynist. I'm not a misogynist, although I did find uh, I did find Edwina as bland as Paula Patton's chicken. But she's supposed to be bland. That's her. That's her narrative role. I am quite. I am quite. I, I am quite aware of that. I am quite aware that that is her her role to be bland as fuck. However, no, thank you. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to say mostly positive things about this. So, what did you like about this particular season? I liked that I watched it at double speed and was able to finish it in like five hours. You motherfucker! I, I'm you know, kidding, I'm kidding. You know that's not what I meant. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I think it was a, the story was a bit more tight. I was I was quite glad I didn't have to watch. Simon have sex for two seconds over and over and over again and be confused as to how he's coming so quickly every time. I mean, he wasn't, that's why. Or pretending to come so quickly. I guess it was like, like this is just bad sex. I don't understand what's happening here. But um, I'm trying to think of nice things, but there was a lot of cliches. Well, yes, of course there's a lot of cliches. It's a romance drama. What did you expect? I know, but... And this is not because the um, the actress, the main actresses were South Asian this time, but it was given it was given um, a Bollywood feel, specifically the movie Bride and Prejudice, Bride and Prejudice, and um, I was kind of here for it, even though it didn't have like the singing and the dancing and such. Although it did have more dancing than last season, I think. There was yes. a, there was a very lovely moment after the after the wedding is interrupted by Edwina realizing that her brother or sorry, her sister and her fiance are essentially in love with each other and calling off the wedding which sends the Bridgertons being into disgrace. Yeah, cuz she's oblivious as fuck. Right. And so there's a lovely moment when they dance at the Bridgerton Mansion when no one has attended their ball that they're throwing. Mm-hmm. And I just, I thought it was a very lovely moment. It's one of the, I think, the things that I enjoyed the most about this season was seeing the, you know, the tender but sometimes difficult relationships among the siblings. Because the first season we got that, yes, but because so much of it was focused on Daphne and... Um, and Simon, there was much less attention played on the Bridgertons, but I feel like we got a much firmer understanding of who the family is this season, and I think that's what makes it a stronger one altogether. And Daphne was boring anyway. Um, a little bit. I mean, I liked Daphne as a character, and I thought she was... Her brief appearances in this season were... They all, worked. They, I said they were very effective because they were brief, and they didn't need to shoehorn her in where she didn't belong. And the same goes for Simon, who was absent altogether. Because by leaving out the characters from the first season, it allows the second season to give more depth and development for the side characters who did not have as much time in the first season. And I think the reason why I, I'm not a huge fan of Bridgerton is because in the same way that I have my my issues with um, Downton Abbey, the side characters are better. Um, I... I like Lady Featherton. I like Featherington. I'm sorry. Um, I like Lady Danbury and I like um, Lady Bridgerton. I like those characters. Um, Penelope, Eloise. I like those characters. I don't like the other ones. I'm just like, I don't care. I think that's honestly an issue with every piece of storytelling. And I say this as a creator myself. Like, it's often the case that you. As a creator, you always have to juggle your main characters who, inf- because they're main and they have to appeal to the broadest number of people, they have to be boring to some degree. They have to be a little more archetypal than fully developed in order to be able to, to carry a narrative by themselves. 
that's not true of side characters who only have to be interesting. They don't have to carry the entire story. I agree. I've written a few screenplays myself, and I can I can admit that when I write the side characters, they tend to be more interesting, more funny, um, and they somehow have more to say and more to do than the main characters. Right, although I will say that I did enjoy about this season was that it did give us more understanding of who Antony is. Because in the first season, he's just kind of a cad, kind of emotionally cold, in the same way that Simon was emotionally cold. That's why they were such good friends. But in this season, we learned that his reasoning for being that way is his profound grief at his father's death, but more importantly, his witnessing of his mother's grief. And that's where I have... um, I think that's where I connected with it. It was the fact that Antony... And Kate both had similar stories. Mm -hmm. They both had a bit of a coldness, but also a world weariness that came from the loss of a father Mm -hmm. and watching. And also she lost her father and her mother in a different way and having to watch her stepmother grieve and then him having to watch his mother grieve while she has five kids and wondering why was why didn't. Why didn't I die? And obviously having postpartum depression and everything. And I connected with that and those with those characters more so than the romance. Usually when the romance comes in, I don't give a shit. Right. I mean, I did appreciate the romance part of it just because I think Jonathan Bailey is uh, such a dream. I would. Mm. Anyway, I don't need to get. I don't need to wax too poetic about his about his male beauty and my, what I would do with him. Uh, but I do agree with you that there's those moments, like his very difficult conversation with his mother, because at this point she's already had her child. Like she almost dies of a breech birth. It's only by a miracle of God that she survives. And, you know, she's truly gutted by her husband's death, which happens by a bee sting, apparently, is the, the conceit, which is plausible because people can die from... I, like an allergic reaction to a bee sting. And she's just so utterly bereft that she can't function. And I mean, that's a, I mean, I think that in a post pandemic world, that moment resonates much more profoundly than I think it would have before. Like it's always, it would have been meaningful before, but because we've all in one way or another dealt with grief, either because we know someone who's died of COVID or we just know that millions of people have died of this disease. It, feels so much more powerful because we know what it's like to have to go on in a world where the thing that you love greatly is no longer there. Kate's, and, Kate's mother making that apology to her or her Kate's stepmother making the apology to her. I should have been there for you and you shouldn't have had to hmm. be, you shouldn't have had to be my, you know, my rock and actually help raise your sister. I should have been there for you, which also, a lot of this reminds me of This Is Us, but mm. that's another Well, it's story. a melodrama. I mean, there's very much melodrama <laughs> yeah. involved. And I also appreciate about Antony that his decision to not marry for love, like that's the thing. He marries Ed, or wants to marry Edwina because it's companionate and they're compatible, not because he loves her. Because he doesn't want to put anyone through what his mother went through, which is, I mean perhaps cliche but i thought it was a truly great sacrifice like i mean that takes a lot to sentence yourself to a life of um, doomed to emotional unfulfillment because you don't want to inflict that kind of damage on somebody well it gives way to a more compelling story than he's just a cat and he's cold and right i mean i saw this he saw the older sister first and then sees the younger sister and decides to marry her because the older sister doesn't want him or so he doesn't think and there's no underlying issues the actual underlying issue is that he knows that he doesn't love this woman Mm -hmm. and that it's not about that. It's about the fact that I can live a life with this woman, not loving her, but also giving her the things that she needs at the same time. He's being practical because he's always had to be practical practical as the oldest son. Right. And we do. I mean, that's one thing I also appreciated about this season was that it really gave us a firmer understanding of the tremendous burden that Antony bears as the eldest member of the family and as the you know the one who is responsible for its fortunes like that's a heavy load for someone to bear 
Um, and I will say that I found the like the moments between Kate and Anthony, like when they have their physical moments, very intense, and I was far more invested than I expected to be. I sped through them. I know you did, but you're you're a cynic, and you know you're a Capricorn. So you, you know that you, that's not your bag. Well, also but, heterosexual but sex doesn't really. Tell I me. typically agree, but two things, you know, I can get invested in hetero rom- hetero romances much more than I can in lesbian romances, which makes me a monster. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's because there's a dick in between. Well, <laughs> yes, which was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is well stated, if a bit blunt. But it's also the case that because Jonathan Bailey is gay in real life, I think that helps to. Oh well, that, they did have great chemistry. I will that not. That is true. They did have very. I good will chemistry. not deny that the two actors didn't have great chemistry. Um, do you want to talk about Lady Feathering Ten? Well, yes, but before I move on to that, I just wanted to say that I appreciated the way that they both articulated their love for each other. Like, like Anthony at one point is like, "You being halfway across the world is not far enough for me." Because I would still be tortured by the idea that I love you. And as, I mean, I will say that as someone who is notoriously afflicted with unrequited love, shall we say, um, <laughs> who has a tendency to yearn after things I cannot or should not want, I found that to be a very resonant point. Overwrought prose is what it was to me. And but I, I loved it. That's why I loved I it. I just couldn't. I, I was just like, oh, God. You know, it's funny. As I said, the, the jump, a good, very good friend of mine who I, I have many agreements with him in pop culture, but said that the show is too schmaltzy. And I think that those moments are why it reads as schmaltzy. That moment specifically was just like, oh, come the fuck on. But that's the joy of it. Like, that's why we watch it is for... Because the thing that is so appealing for those of us who love Bridgerton is it is a world where people are both very contained about their feelings, like where it's always misunderstanding, because if they just tell each other how they feel, they could avoid all of this. But at the same time, they're always telling each other how they feel. And I love it. I I honestly... I just... I I have to say, if someone said something like that to me, I'd be like, What? I would be like, I would get it. But then again, I was born in the wrong No, era. you would give it. You wouldn't get it. Um, I personally, like, what the fuck? Are you saying I would say something like, you living halfway across the world is not far enough for No, me? I think that if it was in a kitchen, you would bend over the counter as soon as they said it. That was the point I was making. So also you would true. get it. I personally, like, what the fuck? No. <laughs> that would be me. But I am quite the cynic. But I do have... It's a cultural uh, gripe with Bridgerton. I get that it's it's being inclusive and such, and that the and but I I have a, I have a few misgivings. It still feels very white to me, and mm. I don't know why. Like there's something about it that still feels white, and I think it's because the people of color. Unless unless you count Simon the first season, are all on the periphery. And even though Lady Dansbury Danbury is re- is like in it, and um, Ka- is it not Catherine? Kate Kate Sharma. No. Oh. The one. Oh, Charlotte, the Queen. Charlotte, Queen Charlotte, is there. It still feels like the people who are actually very active in the story. Mm-hmm. Are white people. Because I don't know if Kate Sharma and Mary and Edwina, even though they are the main characters of the story, I I can't really describe why I feel the way I feel. And maybe it's because it's still written with a Eurocentric Mm. um, sensibility to it. As a matter of fact, there wasn't really any kind of Indian look to the actresses until the final episode wherein um with the bangles mm-hmm. and then the dress that Kate had on kind of resembled like a an Indian sari and I just I don't know it's just it's just hard to it's hard to reprogram your brain when you're watching something that takes place in an era where these these races of people would not commingle or not to this degree anyway and then also 
the way it's written, it's it's not it's not in the same way as like you see Peggy in um the Gilded Age. Right. And how she is portrayed and how she is in it and she's written and she's a black person and she's gone through the things that we know to be true. Those things didn't happen to Lady Danbury. Those things didn't happen. Like, colonization apparently did not happen in India. Right. Uh, to Kate Sharma. And sometimes it's just like, no, I don't disagree. feel that way. Right. No, I don't disagree. And I think that's a criticism that people continue to lodge against the show. But, but... then also, it's obviously fantasy. Right. And so we have to suspend our disbelief and reprogram our brains to be like, okay, these are just, these are people. But then also you can't be like, well, we just came back from, in- we just came from India or this or that because it then takes us out of it again. And we're like, wait, well, India in 1800s? Right. It's like, this doesn't feel right. So it's weird. It is weird. But you asked me if I want to talk about Lady Featherington, and I do. Um, played by the divine Polly Walker, who was most famous, I think, before this for being in Rome, where she plays a similarly scheming and ruthless mother figure, in that case, Atia of the Julii, uh, mother of the future Emperor Octavian. And I think that she is one of the most glorious parts about this show. I think she's arguably one of the best actors in this show. And I think that that tells, and it's unfortunate, obviously, that she's a Featherington and not a Bridgerton, because she doesn't have nearly as much to do. And I noticed that more this season, because most of this season is occupied with her coping with her husband's death and the inheritance of the estate by his, as it turns out, bankrupt cousin from America, who is a shyster. And But it turns out she's quite shrewd manipulating him, because she ultimately like dispatches him at the end to America while she has accrued quite a fortune. And I just think that Featherington is one of the more interesting, as you say, one of the more interesting side characters with main character energy. And I think she could really, I think we could make Lady, a spin-off of Lady Featherington. Yeah, because she has the energy of Bertha Russell from Gilded Age. Right. Like, it's, it's basically the same character. She's not exactly the paragon of virtue that one would think when you've got a protagonist in a movie, in a TV show like this. But she tends to still be pretty likable. Right, and because she says, you know, she has reason to be resentful that the ton has always looked down on her, and she wants to seize a little bit of this for herself. And at the ultimate, she has loyalty to her daughters, which I think is, a, you know, a commendable quality. Especially, you know, given how she can be a prickly character when it comes to her daughters, but she, it's clear she loves them, even if she finds them, as she puts it, like, like I forget exactly the words she uses, but they test her patience, shall we say. They're quite annoying. That's true. Except well, for Penelope. Penelope's not really annoying. She's got her own shit she's got to deal with. Right, but... so maybe then as the last subject for Bridgerton, I do think that Penelope and Eloise are, two, as you say, two of the more interesting side characters. I mean, arguably so is Benedict the second, or the, yeah, the second Bridgerton's son, and Colin, well, I guess, whatever. Um, well, actually, I do have one thing to say before we get to Penelope and Eloise. So there's a moment when Colin goes to visit Marina, who was his love interest for the first season, who is now living with her husband, with her child. Um, viewers will recall that she gave birth to that child out of wedlock, but was lucky enough to find a husband who didn't mind. And she has this moment where she's like, Colin, you need to move on and stop living in a fantasy of the past, which was so fascinating. It's a, one of the few moments where Bridgerton seems to be very self-aware. And it's just like, it's like a call to the audience to be like, don't get too invested in this mm-hmm. because this is fantasy. Don't mistake fantasy for reality and live your life according to that, which I thought was brilliant. Colin can go. He's yeah. as bland as Edwina. Um, I will say this, and somebody might get mad at me, but Eloise and Penelope give lesbian energy. Well, yeah, of course they do. And I'm here for it. Like, I know that it's just, you know, that... I know that that's not going to happen, but it feels like they're so emotionally invested in each other that they are, there's some romance there. Right, and it helps that each of them is very skilled at acting. And of course, by the end of the season, Eloise learns that Penelope is Lady Whistledown, and given that Lady Whistledown has almost ruined Eloise's reputation, 
because of her because Penelope ill-advisedly wants to like in her own way wants to protect Penelope from getting involved with a lower class man they have a vicious argument and obviously will never arguably never speak to one another again but it's a moment like I think that's been coming all season and it's a nice culmination and it keeps the characters from just stagnating and moving and keeps them moving in new and exciting directions yep so I agree with you that there is certainly queer energy between the two of them, and I look forward to seeing how things shape up in future seasons. I think it's more Eloise. Yeah, she does have lesbian vibes, I think. Oh, the other thing... Because she's a tomboy. The other thing I didn't like was when Eloise went to the women's rights thing, and there was, like, this big, heavy-set woman sitting there. I was like, can y'all please not be a massive cliche Mm. of, like, a big lady... A big white woman is the woman's rights leader. I'm like, come on now. Yeah. That annoyed me. But maybe then the last thing I want to talk about is Queen Charlotte, since you brought her up earlier, and we'll use that as our conclusion, who I think is one of the, also one of the best side characters. And I enjoyed, there's one moment in particular where it's right after the wedding has started to break up and Edwina is meeting with her and her husband comes in. Of course, if you know anything about history, you know that George III suffered from quote-unquote madness. Um, and we've had this alluded to before, but this is one of the few times we see her actually confront her husband. And it's so heartbreaking. And I love that moment for her because it reveals the beneath that frosty, very crisp, and, you know, hauteur. There is a real sympathy to her character that I really enjoyed. And getting to see that aspect of her personality. It's obvious that she has to be cold for a reason. Right. She's really kind of like holding in a lot of tragedy. And I think that's a testament to her skill as an actress and as a character. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end. So, Jarrell, where can we find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Corbin Burns. And that's at C-O-R-B-I-N-B-U-R-N-S-I-N. And where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me a bit of everywhere. You can find me on Twitter at TJWest3. You, uh, that's the number three. You can also find me on Instagram at ThomasWest and the number three. And as I alluded to earlier, you can also find me on Substack where I write the newsletter Omnivorous. Where, as I said, you can tune into my episode recaps of Bridgerton as well as a lot of other pop culture and political issues. So I would love it if you would subscribe. And you can also find our podcast on Google, iTunes, Spotify, and all the things. Please comment share retweet do all the things we'd like to get our word out there thank you for listening to our podcast and have a great day mm-hmm.